The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today's topic is what the Bible has to say about Israel. What the Bible has to say about Israel, and I thought that was a great segue from looking at the book of Revelation, which is about the nation of Israel in many respects, especially the latter part of the book, and also in light of what's going on in the world today about Israel. Because Israel is on the front page of the news. Actually, Israel's on the page, the front page of world news every single week, without exception. It's been that way since I've been a Christian, 20 some odd years. And it just seems to continue to heat up. And so there have been some recent events regarding Israel that have inflamed emotions and thoughts. And so I wanted to deal with what does the Bible have to say about Israel. Very practical. Everybody has an opinion about Israel. Everybody does, it seems like. But unfortunately, as I watch the news, listen to news, read the newspapers, it seems like most people's opinions about Israel are they're based on politics. It's a political perspective they have about Israel. That is insufficient. Many times it's a political opinion or an ignorant opinion or an ill-informed opinion. Many people, especially here in America, their opinion and convictions about Israel comes from what they're being told in the mass media, the secular mass media. And when you start to probe and press, you realize they don't have a fully and properly informed opinion about Israel, either presently or historically. And the predominant view that I, in our culture, it seems like more and more, especially around the world, is negative. A negative view of Israel is growing. That is concerning. As a Christian, it's very concerning. perfect example is Helen Thomas. Helen Thomas has been a White House correspondent for 50, almost 60 years. Born here in America, Lebanese in her ethnic origin. And she has been a reporter under many of our U.S. presidents. So she sits there in the White House press corps and had the privilege of sitting in the front row and her mug was always on the television and she always had a comment. Many times she's very sarcastic and cynical and very well known for her very sharp tongue. She's also, her whole professional career, been very critical and outspoken against the nation of Israel. And it reached a crescendo in the last two weeks where she was on camera and somebody asked her what she thinks about what's going on over in Israel right now. And she said, and I quote, Israel needs to get the blank out of Palestine. That's what she said. And go back to Poland and Germany and America. Where they came from. Wow. This is the most seasoned and experienced White House journalist. Saying that publicly on video. This constitutes anti-Semitism or the hatred of the Jews at its highest level. So it was all over the news for the next two weeks. And I agree with Bill O'Reilly. He's not a Christian. But he did say this regarding her comment. Helen Thomas obviously has not read the Bible. Way to go, Bill. Israel needs to get out of Palestine and go back to Poland and Germany and America? Where they came from? How ignorant. How hateful. The United Nations, they hate Israel. We know that from a 
decades of policies that they have supported and affirmed to the detriment of the nation of Israel. All the popular secular news outlets are anti-Israel more and more as time goes by, blatantly so, whether it's NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN, MSNBC, NPR, National Public Radio. You know, it does matter where you get your news. What is your filter? We need to do what 1 Thessalonians 5 says. Examine everything carefully. Examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good and reject every form of evil. Lies about Israel, God's people, is evil. It matters where you get your news, who your filter is. The supermajority of United States colleges and universities are anti-Israel. It's become an ingrained doctrine now. But it hasn't always been that way. For over 200 200 years, the United States, its strongest ally, has always been Israel. Always. Israel is the only free democracy in the Middle East, and it's surrounded by 23-plus totalitarian regimes that despise democracy and actually hate Israel. And their desire is that Israel will be drowned in the sea and eliminated for all time. So there's a move happening. It's kind of scary. All the United States presidents from George Washington up to our most recent president have always been pro-Israel because they understood not only the political implications but also the historical and even biblical implications of that. That is changing here in this country, even at the highest levels. So if you want to know what to think about Israel and the Palestinians then we need to look to the Bible. It's not a political issue. If you want to know what to think about Israel, you go to the Bible. The, book, the Bible is about Israel. It's their history. It is their biography. That's where you go. It is the source. So that's what I want to do today. What does the Bible say about Israel? I just want to do a survey. I'm not going to exhaust everything. I'm probably going to leave you with more questions than questions that I answered. That's okay. But I gave you a lot of Bible references and verses where you can look up on your own. And you need to do that. If you're a Christian, you need to do that. You need to have a very clearly delineated, sound, and settled conviction of Israel from God's point of view. Because that's, that's what the Bible gives us. This is God's opinion, and his, not just His opinion, His edict, His decree about what we should think about Israel. And God's very clear about it. Like I said, the, the entire Bible is about Israel. So we're going to do that. Now, Just I want to clarify things in light of Helen Thomas's comment. Israel needs to get out of Palestine. Now, her understanding or assumption is that all that area over there is called Palestine. That is its name. And that the people that are indigenous to that territory and even recently are Palestinians. She couldn't be more wrong. Uh, historically, that area that we call Israel, that some people call Palestine, by the way, the word Palestine is not even in the Bible. The word Palestine, in terms of its etymology, it comes from the word Philistia, which is, comes from a Hebrew word, Philistia, which is translated in your English Bible as uh, Philistia or the Philistines. That's where the word Palestine comes from. And, that, and the Philistines were sea people that came over and they occupied just the southern west part of the bank, which we know as Israel. That was the area called Philistia. So it didn't encompass the entire nation of Israel. It was just a small portion, a very small portion. So 
That's a misnomer to call that entire area Palestine. It comes from the Philistines. Guys like Goliath, who hated the Jews, who hated God, who hated David. He was a Philistine. Scripture is clear about what God thought about the Philistines. The Philistines were enemies of God. God makes predictions in the prophets that he's going to destroy. He's going to punish with his wrath and his fury the Philistines. Because they were a wicked, vile, vicious people who hated the true God of the universe. That's a historical fact. God declared it. He's shown it to us in his word. A more proper term for that entire land historically isn't Palestine. It's actually Canaan because that's what God called it. It was the land of Canaan. God was going to bring Abraham from or the Ur of the Chaldees over by where uh, Babylon is. And he was going to bring him 500 miles to this land called Canaan. That's the proper name that is an umbrella term that covers pretty much the entire region. Canaan, that's what God calls it in the Old Testament. I'm going to bring you to the land of Canaan. I'm going to give it to you and make it your own. Canaan is the more proper term. And that comes from uh, Canaan was a son of Ham. Ham was a son of Noah. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem was the blessed son by God from which the Messiah would come. Ham violated his father, and as a result, God punished Ham and his son Canaan, and God cursed the entire line and descendants of the Canaanites. And Canaan had many children. They had children. They become the Canaanites like uh, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and all those ites that are mentioned in the Bible that God was going to displace and judge. They were a wicked, vicious, vile people. They did things like uh, worship the god Molech. And God demanded, or Molech demanded, that you sacrifice your babies alive as a sacrifice. And I could go on and on with just the horrible kind of things that they did as a people. And so... Uh, they were not helpful at all whatsoever to humanity and to society, and so God wanted them judged, the Canaanites. So God did that by displacing the Canaanites with his people, the Israelites, and he did that under Moses with about two million Jews as they crossed over into the Promised Land. They're supposed to take over Canaan and make it their own. And in the book of Leviticus, for the first time in history, in the book of Leviticus, two times, God calls the land of Canaan Israel. He gave it a new name. And that has been the permanent name of that land by God since 1400 B.C. Nothing has changed. That's still God's attitude. That is the land of Israel. So that was 3,400 years ago. It's not Palestine. It's not Canaan anymore. Why? Because whose land is it? That's the big battle. Whose land is it? Well, it's God's land. He's the creator of the universe. He owns everything. He said so. He owns every cattle on every hill. He owns it all. And he says over and over again in the Old Testament, this is my land. I will give it to you as an inheritance forever and to all of your descendants. It belongs to God. He owns the land. He decided who it went to and what it will be named. So with that, let's go ahead and look at just an overview of what we should think specifically key points about the nation of Israel all the way from the beginning. So let's go ahead and look at it. I've got six points that I want to highlight and a bunch of sub-points. And like I said, I'm not going to be exhaustive, but more of a survey. But it'll be good because it'll just give us kind of parameters of how we should think. This is shaping our worldview. Very important to be discerning and to develop in our thinking from God's point of view. We want to think His thoughts. Six points. Let's look at the first one regarding the nation of Israel. And that is... Very simple. God created Israel. Yasser Arafat, by the way, was not Palestinian. Even though he invented the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1964 as a terrorist organization because he hated Israelites, he hated the Jews. That was his goal. PLO, that's how it started. 
he was not from that area. He was not indigenous to the area. He was not a native of Palestine, Canaan, Israel. He was born in another country. He was a Muslim. He was a terrorist. He was a fanatic. He was a criminal. He was a bloodthirsty murderer. He killed innocent people. I'm not making this up. But that was Yasser Arafat. He won the, he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1994. Unbelievable. Despicable, actually. He, he managed to write an entire, rewrite an entire curriculum for all the so-called Palestinians in the land of Israel in all of their schools and eliminated any trace of Israel's existence historically. No maps of Israel, no mention of their name. In his mind, they didn't exist, and he removed them entirely from history. And he declares in his historical textbooks that he bequeathed to his children over in that area is that Israel was never indigenous to the land. They never owned the land. They never had a right to the land. Historically, they can't even be traced to the land. David and Solomon, or actually Solomon, never built a temple on the land in Jerusalem. Never happened. It's fictitious, so he says. Yet God's word is different. Point number one, God created Israel. God did. He created Israel, his people. Did it around 2150 B.C. How did he do that? Well, he used one man. That's how he started a nation. So let's go ahead and look at that. Uh, he, he started the nation of Israel and created it through one man named Abram. His original name was Abram. He was a Chaldean. He was a pagan. He worshipped idols. He was not saved for at least 75 years of his life. And yet God had his love and he set his love and affection upon this Abram. He saved Abram. Abram didn't deserve it. There was nothing pleasing about Abraham, Abram to God. It was just a sovereign choice out of a, a heart of love before the foundation of the world that God set His affection and love on this idol worshiper and sinner named Abram. And He called him from Babylon, modern-day Iraq, and told him, leave your relatives, leave your family, and go to a land that I will show you. And it says immediately at age 75, when Abram heard the voice of the Creator of the universe, he immediately obeyed, he left everything, and he started moving 500 miles towards this land. And it's, Scripture says he doesn't even know where he was going. Hebrews 11 recounts it this way, verse 8, By faith, when Abram was called, he obeyed by going out to a place, to a place, literally going to a land which he was to receive from God for an inheritance as a gift from God. And Abram went out not even knowing where he was going. And he is commended for this. He is the exemplar of faith in the Bible. God said, go. Didn't know where he was going. He said, okay, God, I'm going. I'm going and I don't even know where I'm going. And he got blessed for that. That's how I drive, by the way. I'm going and I don't even know where I'm going. And I don't get blessed. I get mocked. I get ridiculed. People make jokes about it. Well, anyway, that's a different story. So Abram, called by God, which is point number two. Why did Abram get called to start the nation of Israel, this blessed, beloved people of God? Because it was Yahweh's choice. It was God's choice. This is election. This is a doctrine taught all throughout the Bible. Why did you get saved? Why did I get saved? God's sovereign election. His choice. Scripture is clear about this. Deuteronomy 7, 7, God says this to the Jews, to the Israelites, to Abraham and his people as to why God created them as a nation in the days of Moses. He said this, Yahweh, by the way, Yahweh, that's God's personal covenant-loving intimate name for His people Israel. He's called by many things. Elohim, just a generic name, God, creator of the universe. 
El Shaddai. But Yahweh, the personal covenant God of Israel. And he says to Israel, Yahweh, I, Yahweh, did not set my love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples or because you were impressive. As a matter of fact, you were fewer than the other peoples. You were very insignificant and unimpressive. I chose you because Yahweh loved you. That's it. That is a sovereign act of saving grace initiated by God on these people. That's why he chose them. That's election. Ezekiel 16, you should read it later this week. It is unbelievable. It is this running metaphor of God giving birth to the nation of Israel, starting with the umbilical cord and the blood all over the baby. It's graphic. It is picturesque. It's beautiful. Until God brings her up to maturity, to the wedding day. He created Israel. Point number two, God made a covenant with Israel, the nation of Israel, and He did it, and He initiated this covenant through Abraham. Uh, I want to just read Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible because the Abrahamic covenant is given. It's a transition point in the Bible. By the way, you could say this. The rest of the Bible from Genesis 13 to to Revelation 22 is a commentary, a divine commentary on Genesis 12. That's how important this chapter is. God made a covenant with Israel. The Abrahamic covenant. Listen to the covenant. You've got your Bible, Genesis 12. Now the Lord, Yahweh again, said to Abram. Abram was his birth name, his pagan name probably. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, leave Iraq, Babylon, Ur, Chaldea. Leave it. Leave your relatives. Leave your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you. He didn't tell him yet. And here's the blessing. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The rest of the Bible is a commentary on Genesis chapter 12, the initiation of the Abrahamic covenant. By the way, God reiterated the Abrahamic covenant and gave new information many times. He introduces it here. He ratifies it by a blood covenant in chapter 15 of Genesis. He gives the sign and seal of it in Genesis 17. And then he gives many other covenants inside of the covenant, fleshing out the Abrahamic covenant, starting with the land or Palestinian covenant, the Levitical covenant of Leviticus 26, the Mosaic covenant, which was the constitution of the nation of Israel and all of its laws and how they should conduct themselves. There's the new covenant. Actually, even before that, there was the Davidic covenant, which talked about a king of this nation that he was creating in the kingly line in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and following. And then he gave the new covenant, which was also a fleshing out of the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12. New implications in Deuter- uh, Je- Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. And then we come to the New Testament and even more details are given. So through progressive revelation, God fleshed out all the details of the Abrahamic covenant. But let's just look at some of the details of this one when it's introduced here, this Abrahamic covenant where God's going to start a nation. Uh, he first he promised to bless them. He promised to bless Abram. Uh, Abram, go forth from your country, from your father's house, the land I will show you, making a great nation. I will bless you. Verse 2, I will bless you. God is saying that. And he did. He blessed Abram with riches, property, servant, servants, money, children, 
land eventually, a great name, a great reputation, protection, provision. God fulfilled his promise. I will bless you. And God did. He blessed Abram. Abram was called a friend of God. What a great moniker for Abram. B, he promised Israel, Abram, the land. He promised him land. This is, part of, this is it. This is rock bed at the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. There are many blessings and promises from God in the Abrahamic covenant. And part of it at the core is the land, the physical geography. Look at verse 7 of Genesis 12. He initiates the Abrahamic covenant and then he explicitly says that Yahweh appeared to Abram. What a great privilege. What a blessing. And Yahweh said to your descendants, to your seed, to your offspring, to all the Israelites that will come from your loins, to all the Jews. That's what it means. To your descendants, I will give this land, this land that you've come to, this land of Canaan, I will give it to you and to your descendants. That was part of the Abrahamic covenant. Flip over to Genesis 15. God is, this is, by the way, that was 75 years old when uh, God introduced the covenant to Abraham. Abram actually was 75 years old. Eleven years goes by. He's now 86 in Genesis 15. And then God's going to ratify the covenant in the way they, this would be like a handshake. You spit on your hand and you shake hands with somebody and you make a deal. That's a covenant. It's between two parties. You commit yourself to each other. You make a vow to each other. And that's what God is doing in Genesis 15. He's cutting the covenant. He's shedding blood in the covenant. I'm making a vow between me, you and me, Abram, and we're going to shed blood. We're going to use animals and we're going to slice them in half and blood is going to splatter. And that was a sign that if either of us, or if the covenant is broken, the other party is worthy of death. So that's what he does in Genesis 15, 8 through 11. So they take all these animals, a goat, a cow, a pigeon. They cut the animals in half except for the bird and then they set them apart each from each other. They make an aisle of this, these bloody animals and then the two partners who were making the covenant were supposed to go side by side and walk through the bloody animals together. That was this, the covenant, breaking of the covenant or making of the covenant. But before, So after they get the animals all bloody and instead of God and Abram walking through together to ratify the covenant, God does something very interesting in verse 12 of Genesis 15. He puts Abram to sleep like He did with Adam when he was about to do a great thing. He's going to do another great thing and he puts Abram to sleep. And God decides to walk through and make a covenant with Abram, vowing, not to Abraham, vowing to himself. God took a vow with himself. I will fulfill my covenant. God is unchanging. He can never lie. He is eternal. And God was saying, because I didn't vow with you, Abram, a weak man, I vowed with myself this covenant will never be broken. Never. And it's a literal covenant. So it says literally God went through the bloody animals and He did it in the form of a theophany. Verse 17, it says, It came about when the sun had set at nighttime that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven flying through the sky like the pillar of smoke that would follow them through the desert. That was God's presence. A smoking oven and a a flaming torch of burning light in God's glory. Also, representing that pillar of light that would be walking through with the people of Israel through 40 years in the desert. That was the presence of God. That was a theophany. That's Him appearing and He walks through and He makes a vow with Himself, says Hebrews 6. And then, verse 8, so the vow was over. It was done. This is forever. Verse 18, on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, ratified it by vowing unto Himself, and part of the promise was, to your descendants, I have given this land. The land is part of it. God gave the land 
to Israel by covenant. And then finally in chapter 17, Genesis 17, now Abram is 99 years old. God initiated the covenant in chapter 12. He was 75. God ratifies the blood covenant in chapter 15. Abram is 86. Now we go a few years ahead of time, and now Abram is 99 years old. And God gives the sign of the covenant. He gives the sign of circumcision as the seal of the covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. In verse 7 it says, and then in verse 8, God promises, I will give to you the land. There it is. The land. This is, this is true all throughout the Bible. I'll give you a zillion verses. The point is, God promised to give the Israelites the land of Canaan. It's unchanging. Hebrews 11 calls it the land of promise, the promised land. What else did He give them? He blessed them, promised to give them land. He also promised seed. That's letter C, 2C. God promised seed. Back to Genesis 12, verse 7. Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, literally, to your seed, that's the word, to your seed, to your lineage, to your offspring, to your people that will come after you, the people that will come out of your loins forevermore. To your descendants, to your seed, I will give this land. The seed included all of the Jews that would be born out of the loins of Abraham, especially all the believing Jews that would ever come from the loins of Abraham, and ultimately the quintessential seed, descendant, offspring, Israelite, Jew, Hebrew of Hebrews, Jesus Christ the Messiah. That's where the Abrahamic covenant is ultimately fulfilled in the promise to the seed. God said clearly to Adam and Eve when they sinned, and then God cursed the snake, He cursed Satan, but He also gave blessing and promise that I'm going to overcome sin, I'm going to overcome Satan, and that was Genesis 3.15. There will be a seed, there will be a descendant of the woman, a descendant of Eve who will come and conquer Satan's work. That is the Savior, that is the Messiah. It's fulfilled through the Abrahamic covenant and concludes with Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says about this seed, the ultimate offspring coming from the loins of Abram. Uh, Galatians 3, he puts it this way, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham from God about the Abrahamic covenant and to his seed or descendant. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one seed, great seed, and to your seed, that is Christ. So if you believe in Christ, you're actually, you partake in the Abrahamic covenant even though you're not Jewish. It's amazing. It's a miracle. It's, it happens by way of adoption. That's John chapter 1, verse 12. Adopted in. Gentiles. So God promised Abram blessing, land, seed. Uh, D, He promised to make them a nation. Make them a nation. One guy becoming a nation. That doesn't work. What do you need to have a nation? Well, you need at least three things. You need land, right, to have a nation. You need laws. And you need laity. That's the word for people. Land, laws, laity. And God was going to, through the Old Testament and progressive revelation, provide all of that to make Abraham a nation. He gave them the land. When they went through the promised land and Moses led them in, that's where the land. He promised he would give them the land. He also gave them the law or their constitution with the Ten Commandments and the other 600 plus laws that God gave through the Mosaic Covenant. So those were the laws. And then he had to give them a people. They had to multiply and become as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And he did that for 400 years with Jacob's descendants in Egypt where they went from 70 people to 2 million. And those 2 million moved into the land of Canaan. And they received the land, the law. And the laity, and God fulfilled that promise. He made him a great nation. What else did He promise to give him? Letter E. We hinted at this already. He, he promised to bless others aside from Himself and His descendants. He promised to bless other people. He promised to bless Gentiles, non-Jewish people. The Hebrew word is the goim. The goim. The non-Jews. I'm a goim. Well, where's that blessing? Well, in chapter 12, He says this. 
the end of verse 2, he says, you will be a blessing. You're going to be blessing other people. Verse 3 more specifically, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth, all the nations, all the peoples, all the goim are going to be blessed through you, Abram. Why? Because the Messiah would come from Abram and he would be the Savior of the world, as John chapter 4 says. Savior of the world, of Gentiles as well. That's what the New Covenant is all about. That Gentiles would be... We would also inherit spiritual blessings from the Savior who was a Jew. Amazing. And then finally, in this covenant, God promised to protect Israel. Protect them. He was going to keep them intact. Did you know there are nations that existed thousands of years ago that don't exist anymore? What was the last conversation you had with a Girgashite? Well, you probably haven't. They're gone. Obliterated. The Hittites, the Hivites, can't even find a trace of them. They don't exist. They were wiped out. Went into extinction. It happens all the time. Nations and people go into extinction. Uh, the Jews, beginning, beginning with Abram, which was 2100 B.C., Abram 4,100 years ago, Israel as a nation, as a people, as an entity, has been around for 4,100 years. There is no homogeneous nation or people that has been around that long. It is the longest existing nation on the face of the earth that is purposeful. That is God's decision. He promised to protect them. Despite the Hitlers and the Stalins and the, all the other anti-Semites all throughout history, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar, Herod himself, Haman, during the book of Esther, tried to wipe out and obliterate the Jews all the way down to the PLO leader, Yasser Arafat, who wrote many times, preached many times, our goal is to wipe out Israel and shove them into the Mediterranean Sea. End quote. Ain't going to happen. God promised to protect them. At the end of verse 3 in the Abrahamic Covenant, He said, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse, I will curse. Are you a friend of Israel or not? Determines your relationship with God. So that's the covenant He made with Israel. That's the key to this whole study, by the way. This initial promise God made. He's committed to this covenant, by the way. And that's point number three. God is committed to Israel through this covenant that He made with His people as He created this nation. Some things about this covenant that God made with them very clearly. The promise that God made to Abram 4,100 years ago is an everlasting covenant. It is an eternal covenant. God is still committed to it. By the way, everything that God promised in this covenant has not been fulfilled. It wasn't fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. There are literally hundreds of prophecies that still need to be fulfilled and promises, and they will in the future. God has a plan for Israel in its future. He is committed to the nation of Israel. It's an everlasting covenant. That's point A. Point B. God swore by Himself. We already talked about that. He took a vow unto Himself. Ezekiel 16.8 says, I swore to you, Israel, and entered into a covenant with you so that you would become My possession. And God's going to do it. By the way, in Genesis 12, five times God says, I will, I will, I will. It's all God's initiative. He will not fail. Point C, God is committed to Israel. God married Israel. God is betrothed to Israel. Actually, the, the marriage hasn't been consummated yet. It's a long process. This is the uh, betrothal period. What does God think of divorce? God hates divorce. God is the husband. He chose His bride. His bride is Israel. By the way, the nation of Israel is called a bride in the Old Testament. The church is called the bride in the New Testament. Somehow, mysteriously, He's going to coordinate all of that so that he has one people who are believing that are his bride for all eternity. But God is not going to divorce Israel because it's his beloved. It is his betrothed. He's married to. He's committed forevermore to the nation of Israel. 
We also know he's committed to Israel because of point D. God amended his name for Israel. When you get married, you change your name. Usually the female changes her name or she hyphenates and adds the husband's name onto her name, right? Well, God, the husband, changed his name when he got married to Israel. Hundreds of times, a technical phrase, God assumed the name the God of Israel. Hundreds of times. That, his name refers to his very identity of who he is. He's an immutable God. He will never change. He is always the God of Israel. Amazing. He hasn't abandoned his name. He's not going to get divorced. Point E, God is committed to Israel. God made hundreds of promises to Israel in the Old Testament. Hundreds. And He's going to fulfill every single one of those. Hebrews or uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 25 says that the promises that God makes to and the calling that He makes are irrevocable. He will fulfill every single one. He's going to fulfill every promise that He ever made to His bride. God is committed to Israel. Point number four, God is... Something has changed. God is chastening Israel. God is punishing Israel. He's chastening His beloved bride who are sinful. But we learned that last week at Laodicea. We know that's God's character. He does that with the people He loves. Revelation 3 said that, right? Jesus was rebuking a church. He was going to chasten a church. He was going to punish the church for their sin to woo them, to soften them, to bring them to repentance, to help them grow and mature. That's His goal. That's what discipline is for. And God said, quote, Those whom I love, I chasten and discipline. Revelation 3, 19. And He said the same thing about Israel. Leviticus 26, verse 14 and 15, before He took them into the promised land, He said, I married you. I am committed to you. I am eternally committed to you. You will be my bride. But if you violate the covenant, you will be chastened. You will, there will be consequences. They're not eternal. They're not forever. But there will be consequences. And that's Leviticus 26, 14, 16. And the height of that chastening was that God said, if you disobey, I will scatter you among the nations. I will leave a remnant here in the land of Israel, but I will scatter the rest of you around the world. And that's what happened uh, to the Jews. And it's happened since the time of Christ. Even before that, it happened in the Old Testament. But again, it happened in 70 A.D. And all throughout history, there are Jews all over the world. They can't find a home. They can't rest. They have no rest until God gathers them in the future into their land. So they're going under a time of chastening. If you want to read more about it in Romans chapter 11, the entire chapter of Romans 11, Paul explains how God is chastening His people right now. And so He's chastening them and He's turned His attention to the church. His beloved bride, the church now, saving Jews and Gentiles from all over the world and making them into one new man, one body. In the meantime, He's chastening Israel so that they'll come back to repentance and embrace their Savior collectively, corporately as a nation, which they will in the future. We know that from Romans 11:26 and also the book of Revelation, which we will be studying. So this is a time of chastening to woo Israelites around the world unto Jesus the Messiah and embrace Him because your average Orthodox Jew, when he hears the name Jesus, he spits in the face of the person who says that name. They loathe and despise Jesus the Messiah. Someday they will embrace Him and whom they have pierced. It be a glorious day. They're under chastening. Number five, by the way, just because God's chastening doesn't mean that He's not saving Jews, because He is. Jesus was Jewish. We need to remember that. He was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. God, How can any Christian be anti-Semitic? Your Savior was Jewish. The twelve apostles were Jewish. Jews gave us the Bible. They're God's beloved people. Paul's heart is broken for Jews. In Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, praying for their salvation. My beloved brethren, according to the flesh, he says. The first church that existed at Jerusalem had 3,000 souls that got saved. Every one of them was a Jew. Jews are getting saved all the time. 
point number five, which brings us to this great mystery called the church. The church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. The church is not taught about in the Old Testament. The church is not even looked forward to in the Old Testament explicitly by name. It doesn't exist. It's called a mystery in the New Testament. The apostles, according to Ephesians 3, revealed this mystery that was unknown for all ages about the church, the entity of the church. God loves Israel. God loves the church. In the Old Testament, Israel, his people, God called Israel a temple, my beloved. He called him a bride. He called him the betrothed. He called him a servant. He called him the vine. One thing that God never called Israel in the Old Testament was his body. He never said that about Israel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, that is Paul's favorite name. That is God's favorite name for the church, the body of Christ. That is the mystery. Some people say, well, the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians 3 is that Gentiles would be saved. That is not a mystery. The fact that Gentiles would be saved is all over the Old Testament. It's everywhere. Job was a Gentile. Noah was a Gentile. Anybody before Abraham was a Gentile that got saved. So that's not the mystery. The mystery is that God would take Jews and Gentiles together and make them a new entity called the body of Christ that God would set His love and affection upon through the work of Christ. That is the mystery. The church is the mystery. The body of Christ is the mystery. Not the Gentiles would be saved. So number five, the church is not new Israel. The church and Israel need to stay distinct. They are literal. The church is a New Testament mystery. Two times in Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, Paul calls it a mystery. The word mystery, the apostles used to refer to a, a truth that was never revealed in the Old Testament. And it's a new truth revealed in the New Testament for the first time under the apostles. By the way, another mystery is mentioned in Romans 11, and that's the mystery of the hardening of Israel. That they would be hardened, that they would be grafted out of God's plan while the church was grafted in temporarily as God would set His affection and priority on the church. A mystery not revealed in the Old Testament. But the church is now God's people. It is now God's bride. It is now God's vine, His temple, and most importantly, the body of Christ. And an important hermeneutical point as you read your Bible, the word Israel always means Israel. In the New Testament, every time you see the word Jew or Israel, it always means blood ethnic Israel. Too many Christians try to spiritualize it and say, no, this is the new Israel. Uh, Israel in the New Testament is the church. They're the new Israel. No, they're not. We need to keep them distinct. That's called replacement theology, and it's not right. God made hundreds of promises to Israel that haven't been fulfilled, especially regarding the land. God promised the land in Genesis 15 to Abram and his descendants, extending from Egypt down by the Nile River all the way across over into Babylon to the Euphrates River. Did you know that historically Israel has never even come close to possessing that land? Never. But that still needs to be fulfilled, and it will be in the future. We know that. After the... After the time of the tribulation going into the millennium, God is going to fulfill that. So the word Israel in Jew in the New Testament always means ethnic Israel. Always. We can't mess up the two. And then finally, point number six, God will consummate. Remember when I said that he chose Abram and Israel, that was the beginning of their betrothal period. And it's going on all throughout history. And there's going to be a consummation which will become a wedding, an eternal wedding, where God will be wedded, married, literally, in Christ to Israel as a nation as well as the church and all of his people that have believed through the ages. And that will be the great consummation. It is yet future. And I could have given you pages and pages of verses out of Old Testament prophets talking about in the future where God is going to fully and totally restore Israel, first by bringing them back to the land. He said that in Leviticus 26. He said, for chastening, I will remove you from the land and scatter you. And in the end, I won't forget my covenant and I will bring you to myself and I will bring you all back to the land. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. 
And we're going to see this in detail in the book of Revelation. It's going to be exciting. Some of these passages are amazing that I put down there for you, showing that God still has this great affection and desire and broken heart for the nation of Israel. Zephaniah 3.17 is particularly beautiful, where it's like God is holding Israel as a little baby and He's singing, singing over this precious child, wooing it to sleep and with comfort. That's the imagery given in Zephaniah 317 of what God's going to do in the future with the nation of Israel, even though they have been sinful and rebellious and idolatrous and gone out for other lovers, as the book of Hosea said, God is going to fulfill His promise to the nation of Israel. And I would just encourage you to have a biblical mindset regarding the nation of Israel. Study further these Scriptures on your own and thank God if you have the right view of Israel and a positive view of Israel. Because Genesis 12 still stands when he said to Abram, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you for our time together to worship with the saints, to, to sing to you, to be reminded of who you are, what a great and awesome God. You're the Creator, you are Yahweh, the Covenant Keeper, and you are the God of Israel the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we also thank You that You are the Father of Jesus Christ. You are the God of anyone who believes in Your name. And that's all of us here who, who know You personally as an intimate Heavenly Father because we've believed and trusted in the Gospel. Thank You so much for that blessed truth. And God, we pray for those that, that we know, relatives, friends, neighbors, co-workers who don't know You yet. We pray and plead with You for their softening and their salvation as Paul does for the Jews who rejected you and his heart was broken for their salvation that they might know you. And that's our prayer as well, God. And we, we pray that we would see that in our lifetime in every area and walk of life. Thank you so much for the truth of your word as we commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.